Good morning. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Justin Beam, and I have the distinct privilege of being an elder here at FAC. And it's a real privilege, an additional privilege, for me to be able to share God's Word with you this morning. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you always and only through Jesus, the King, our King. And Father, our prayer this morning is very simple. Would you be here with us by your Spirit, that we could see you for who you really are? That's what we really need. Anything less than that will just not do. Would you be here by your Spirit? Father, we commit these moments into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever been a part of a really big, really loud, really excited crowd where you could say, after the fact, you could say, man, that place was electric. Have you ever been part of something like that? Maybe it was a concert. Maybe it was a worship service at a church. Maybe it was a sporting event. Have you ever been part of something like that? Probably most of us in here at one point or another have been a part of something that just felt like it was so much bigger than us. And it's easy to get swept up in that. Tens of thousands of people all doing the same thing, cheering the same, the same words. You know, we live in a culture in this country that is just full of things, events like this, don't we? And just as an example, between the months of September and December in this country, every Sunday afternoon we see this. And not just in one or two places, all across the whole country. What do people get together in these giant, loud, excited crowds to do? watch football. And I love it. Lots of people love it. You ever been part of something like that where it's just so loud? It's so exciting. You just get swept up in it. But let's not talk about, oh yeah, football crowds, that's exciting and you know, keep it kind of theoretical out there. Let's talk about something personal. How about Browns Steelers? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Brown Steelers, late season game, playoff implications. And maybe that's a little fantasy because the, the team directly to our west has had a hard time having a game that had playoff implications lately. But if we kept talking about, even this morning, if we kept talking about the Browns and the Steelers, I mean, punches could be thrown. I mean, we're not going to stay talking about the Browns and the Steelers. I mean, this is something that people are passionate about. Okay, well, think of that. Think of that kind of intensity in a crowd, tens of thousands of people. And then add one more magic ingredient. Add politics. Oh, yeah. Now we've got a ticking time bomb. We've got a firecracker that's ready to be lit, right? 
Let's turn in our Bibles to a crowd scene like that. Turn with me to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, and we'll start reading in verse 9. And of course, this is Palm Sunday. And this passage is normally read on Palm Sunday. But let's look at what's really going on here. John chapter 12. And we've got to back up a few verses. Let's start in verse 9 so we get the idea. What's really going on before Jesus enters Jerusalem? The Apostle John writes, Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there, and Jesus is in Bethany, and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. You see, they'd already made plans to kill Jesus. That was a set thing. They had already counseled on this. Best course of action, kill Jesus. John says, well, they've decided to kill Lazarus also. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. And so this is tactical thinking. If you're the chief priests and Jesus is a major political problem for you, and he is, the crowds are going after him. Their reasoning is good. If we're going to kill Jesus, we had better knock off Lazarus as well because he is a living, breathing, walking, talking piece of evidence. And what is he evidence of? He's evidence that this man named Jesus spoke to a tomb, his buddy's tomb, Lazarus's tomb, and he got up after being dead three or four days and came out. This wasn't a resurrection like, oh, we heard Jesus raise someone from the dead. There was this guy in one of the crowds, and he fell over and had a stroke, and everybody thought he was dead, and Jesus did CPR. No. Dead four days. Jesus says, come out. Lazarus comes out. And there are plenty of eyewitnesses. And the eyewitnesses are telling people, and people are telling people, did you see it yourself? No, but my best friend's girlfriend's cousin was there. You know how, you know how stuff spreads, right? And so the word is spreading. This guy named Jesus raised someone from the dead. And this is getting people's attention. And so even in Bethany, the crowds are coming to Jesus, and they're coming to see Lazarus, who is evidence. They want to touch him. You're the guy? Yeah, I was dead. And so this sets the scene for Jesus' entrance into the city of the kings, the city of Jerusalem. The Apostle John says, The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And you have to understand, if you're a Jew, even an occupied Israel, there are a few times in the year when whatever you're doing, you just make it to Jerusalem. And Passover, the feast, is one of them. You just be there. Maybe you can't make it as much as you'd like, but you be there for Passover. 
And historically, this created a huge problem for the Roman Empire concerning Jerusalem because the city was just not physically big enough to contain all these Jewish people. And literally, the population during this festival, during the Passover, would spill out of the city and into the countryside. And so if you're a Roman centurion or you're on law enforcement duty for this, you're a little nervous already because these crowds, every year these crowds, are really big. And the crowd hears Jesus is coming, and what do they do? They took palm branches, and they went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna. And all Hosanna means is, save us. They're they're shouting to Jesus, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. This crowd is a Jewish crowd predominantly, and they know their Old Testaments. And the first part of this little chant that they're chanting is from Psalm 118, and it's a psalm of ascent. So in days gone by, a victorious king of Israel, if he came back, maybe there'd be a crowd singing this for him. Or a pilgrim, or a dignitary. But you came back into Jerusalem, and this is one of the songs people would sing. And then the crowd adds a line. And it's an Old Testament line, but it's not in Psalm 118. The crowd says, Blessed is the king of Israel. In John's Gospel, this idea of Jesus as king, to this point in chapter 12, is basically non-existent. There's only one other time the Apostle John has written anything about Jesus being king prior to this. And it's way back in chapter 1, and Jesus is calling one of his disciples, Nathaniel, and Nathaniel says, you're the son of God, you're the king of Israel. But it hasn't been this predominant theme, it hasn't been, uh, if you're reading through John, you don't go, oh, well, one of the main points of this book is that Jesus is the king of Israel. But then this crowd says this, and from this point on in your, in your gospel, the gospel of John, Jesus the King becomes the predominant theme. And this is where it starts. And this mob is going nuts. They are juiced for this. Here's this man coming in and they are politically charged. And they are thinking thoughts like, Is this the king who was to come from the line of David and defeat all our enemies? Is this the guy? Is this the Messiah? Is this the great king, this man? Is he going to raise an army? Is he going to kick those no-good, nasty Romans out of here? Even the palm branches that they're waving are political. You go back and look into this, and palm branches have become a symbol of Jewish nationalism. So it's it's a political statement. They're saying, Hail the new king! And what's powerful and what's amazing is Jesus' response to this crowd. 
Jesus' response is perfect, just like everything else Jesus does. It's perfect. He doesn't tell the crowds, be quiet, you don't know what you're talking about. They don't know what they're talking about. They're taking words on their lips that are doctrinally sound, and they are right, and they are true. He's the king of kings. He's far greater than what this crowd thinks he is. But they don't know what they're doing. They're political. But Jesus doesn't tell them, you guys be quiet. You can't say that. You can't call me a king. The Romans will have a really big hard time about this. Don't do that. That's not what he does. And in some of the other Gospels, we see that the Pharisees come to Jesus at this point. And remember this story? And they say, Jesus, you got to tell these people to be quiet. Do you hear what they're saying? This could be bad news for everybody. You remember Jesus' answer? It's not, oh, sorry, fellas. Sorry. I'll try to get them calmed down. Remember Jesus' answer? He says, if these people don't worship me right now, the rocks will start worshiping me. And Jesus was right to accept that worship because he's the king. This is the second person of the Trinity, the almighty God come down in human flesh. And he deserves this worship. So he doesn't tell him to be quiet. That would have been wrong. But what does he do? John tells us. Jesus speaks something without saying any words far more powerful than anything he could have tried to scream at this crowd. And John tells us his response, verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it. As it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. That's the big message Jesus gives to this raucous crowd. He gets on a donkey and he rides in. And to many of us, this doesn't mean anything because we don't ride donkeys and we don't ride horses. There's no significance to us in this culture. But John quotes the prophet Zechariah. Real quick, let's read in context how John sees the significance of Jesus getting on a donkey. Turn with me quickly. Read, and let's read Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly. You hear that? Lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. And it wouldn't be till later that his disciples even realized what Jesus had done. See, Jesus had an answer to the crowd. His disciples totally did not understand it at the time. And this is Jesus' answer. He rides in on a donkey, 
and specifically not a war horse. You know why? Because Jesus is not a politician. And praise God that he's not. Any politician for the last 2,000 years, if they could have advised Jesus at this moment, they all would have said the same thing. They would have said, Jesus, your poll numbers are spiking. This crowd is primed. And you need to give them what they want. And if you do, they will be yours. And if Rasmussen and Gallup had been in Jerusalem taking surveys, asking questions, the headline would have read, Jesus' popularity spikes 30 points in a week. And here he comes, and he's coming into the city. Good political move? Jesus would have said, go run out. He would have told one of his disciples, run out and find the biggest sword you can find. And bring it to me, and somebody else go get a big war horse. I mean, the most regal, kingly looking animal you can find. And if Jesus were a politician, if he would have been politically motivated in his mission, he would have got on that horse with a sword. And you know what? The crowd would have gone nuts for him. D.A. Carson, who's one of the greatest, most respected New Testament, living New Testament theologians and scholars. D.A. Carson had this to say about this event, about Jesus. He says, He does not enter Jerusalem on a war horse, which would have whipped the political aspirations of the vast crowds into insurrectionist frenzy. In other words, if Jesus rides in there on a mighty steed... This crowd gets violent. I mean, they'll try to make him the king. And they've done that before in the Gospel of John. But Carson says, But he chooses to present himself, present himself as the king who comes in peace, gentle, and riding on a donkey. And Jesus, in this scene, imagine it, tens of thousands waving palm branches, Jesus in this scene is the only person in the whole crowd who knows why he's there. You see, he's not there to do magic tricks for the crowd and he's not there to raise an army and he's not there to sit on a royal golden throne and he's not there to kick the Romans out. That's what the crowd wanted, but he's not there for that. Our Lord comes as the great king of peace from Zechariah, lowly, humble, riding on a donkey. And he comes for a kingdom that is far, far greater than anything this crowd could have ever imagined. He comes for a kingdom that expands beyond Jerusalem, beyond the geographical borders of Israel, beyond the known world of Rome. What did Zechariah say? The king of peace's kingdom will spread over the whole earth. 
And that's the kingdom he's here for. And not only the whole earth, but stretching into the future thousands of years. That's his kingdom. And Jesus has locked on to his target. His whole life is about one thing. And he has locked on to it. He's not letting go. He hasn't come to the city of kings for a throne. He hasn't come for a crown of gold. He has not come riding a big war horse with thousands and thousands of raging fanatic followers that he could say anything and they would do it. He hasn't come there for that. Because he's come here for something so far greater, he's come here just for the one thing. You know what it is? He's come to this city to die. And he's the only one who knows it. He's tried to tell his disciples, we find in the other Gospels, they couldn't even comprehend. He must be talking about something else. Of course, he's not going to die. He's not going to die. You see, I think our Lord was very, very lonely on this day. As he approached Jerusalem, the city of kings... There's this sharp contrast between the crowd and Jesus. The crowd wants a political savior to throw the Romans out and be the new king from the line of David. And you know what Jesus has on his mind? Death. His own death on a Roman cross. No one gets it. If you could take a snapshot of this picture... Jesus riding in, you know, the palm branches and the shouting. If you could just take one snapshot of this and make a painting or blow the picture up, I think there would be one title that would be really appropriate on Palm Sunday. You know what it is? Jesus, alone again in a crowd. The crowd wants a fairy tale ending. And we know that there is no fairy tale ending. It was easy to worship Jesus on this day. It was fun. I mean, really. You know what it's like to be part of a big crowd. That's exciting. That's fun. But this is no fairy tale. You see, there'd be another group assembled before Jesus. In just a few days. You know what that group would be yelling? After this triumphant entry. And they're calling him the king of Israel. You know what this next group, in just a few days, is going to be screaming to Pontius Pilate? Give us Barabbas. See, it would be harder to be the king on that day. Turn with me quickly to John, chapter 18. John 18. 
John 18. Let's pick up reading in verse 33. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him... Now listen to the language Pilate uses. Remember the crowds on Palm Sunday? You're the king of Israel. Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate's famous reply. With this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there, and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom to release, to, for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. You want me to release the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. There would be a coronation in the city of the kings just a few days from this Palm Sunday. But it wasn't the crown that the crowd thought it would be. It wasn't a stately, royal, golden crown, was it? The King of Kings and Lord of Lords would have a crown of long thorns pushed down onto his defenseless head. And blood would have been running down his face. Oh, there was a coronation. But it wasn't the one that crowd thought it would be. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying... Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. And instead of sitting on a mighty throne in the city of kings, a throne made of gold and ruling over his subjects, the King of Glory is nailed to a couple pieces of wood and taken outside the city and murdered like a piece of scum, like a scumbag. See, the Jews would have got that. Gentiles kill them out of the city. That's where the trash goes.
And do you remember the label that Pilate put over Jesus as he died in agony on that cross, that Roman cross? Remember what it said? Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And the crowds would have been thinking, this is no king. Kings don't act like this. He didn't even try. He didn't even fight back. And we thought he was going to do all these things for us. No king of mine. It's easy to worship Jesus from far away, isn't it? It's easy to be like the crowd. And it's easy to look at the crowd and say, stupid crowd. Didn't they get it? But if you're honest, you know that you're fickle, and I'm fickle like the crowd. When things are going great, when it's popular, when it's fun, when it's exciting, it's easy to worship Jesus, right? They had no clue on Palm Sunday what was going on. And Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, knew exactly what was going on. And for your sake and for my sake, he held steadfast on his one mission. The mission that was his from his very birth. He was born to die. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't come here to be a politician? I sure am. You know, Jesus knows suffering. And he knows embarrassment. He knows hunger and thirst and poverty and shame. He knows torture. He knows brokenheartedness. And he knows, of all the people who have ever lived, he knows loneliness, probably in the biggest way. But you see, this this is what makes him such a good king. For a bunch of sinners like us. Because Jesus isn't a good king when it's Palm Sunday and the crowds are going wild. And everything's roses and your life is great. He's the king that day, but that's easy. You know, this makes Jesus a really good king for you and for me on the worst day of our lives. Because he knows exactly what it's like to be trampled on and misunderstood and mocked and spit on and lonely and out of money and out of time and out of energy And just scorned and rejected. Makes me so glad that he's my king. He gets it. He's no politician. He's not kissing babies and saying whatever people want to hear and putting on a show. He's the polar opposite of that. He's as real as you are on your worst day. And I praise Him for it. 
And Jesus rode in to this city. And it was the city of the kings. I mean, this is where the king goes. Do you ever worship him from afar like the mob? I do. I'll just be honest. I do. When it's popular. From a, from a distance, you can look out and see Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, Jesus. He's all right. He's a pretty good guy. You ever do that? I do it. And you know, the world... The world doesn't, a lot of times, hate Jesus like we think they do. Generally speaking, the world likes him, even those who don't know him. At a distance. I like his teaching. I like his psychological counsel. I like that he liked the poor. He was into helping the poor economically. He was a nice guy. He hung out with people who were rejected. People like that. You could go to an atheist and say, what do you think about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount? You know what he would say? He would say, well, I'm an atheist. I don't believe any of this other stuff's true, but that's great psychological counseling advice. I mean, everybody knows that. The tests have been done. The studies have been conducted. I like his teaching. It's easy to like him out there. But when he's on a cross... The crown of thorns, and it's hard. It's hard to embrace that king, the king who's being embarrassed on a cross. Do you know the king who rode into Jerusalem for a crown of thorns and not the stately crown of political power? If you don't know that Jesus, you don't know him at all. This isn't the end of the story here in John chapter 12. The closing chapters of Jesus' life are the most horrible, and they are, by all means, the most wonderful. And we're out of time. And you'll have to come back Friday evening and again next Sunday if you want to hear the story ends. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, why would you ever give your son over to Pontius Pilate for us? And yet you have Jesus willingly fixed his eyes on the cross and a crown of thorns and not a throne and a golden crown of political power. And Lord Jesus, we just thank you. Thank you so much that you said no to that crowd. And you said yes to the Father's plan for your life. We praise you. We worship you. We embrace you as the lowly king. 
who understands pain and every other heartbreak and suffering. Father, if there are any here this morning who have only ever loved Jesus, the King, at a distance, and not up close and personal, not the King with the crown of thorns on a cross, Lord, would you draw them by your Spirit? Would you open their eyes and their ears that they could see the glory of of the greatest king who ever lived, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we thank you, Lord, that putting our faith in you, we find a king who sympathizes with us, who washes us of all our sin, past, present, and future, who pays the penalty for all that sin, who clothes us in a robe of righteousness and brings us into your family. Thank you, Lord. Don't let us love you from a distance. Don't let us be like this crowd. Lord, forgive us when we worship from afar. We do it. When we come to Jesus for the party on Sunday, but then turn away, when it gets more difficult to be his disciple, forgive us, Lord, we've all been there. Father, would you seal this word to our hearts? Would you bless us this week? Would all the hype of Easter be silenced? That we could see Jesus. That Friday night we could remember his excruciating passion and death. And that Sunday we could rejoice that the King of Kings is alive and well and risen. King forever. And we long for the day, Lord Jesus, because we know you will come on a war horse. With the armies of heaven behind you, with a name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Oh, hasten that day that you would come and the whole world would bow the knee before you, the humble king who died for his subjects. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You're dismissed. Have a good rest.